We're going to pick up where we left off in lesson four, talking about the book of Exodus. Um, we are, um, let's see, we are in chapter 33. In your notes, this is probably page eight out of nine. We've got a little ways to go here, and then we'll jump over and start Leviticus and get as far as we can. Okay? So um, we've been talking about this book of Exodus. Do you guys remember the theme from the book? You can hint, hint, you can look there on that first page of, of lesson four. Um, the theme of Exodus is that God has redeemed his people out of slavery into a special relationship with him. And in doing so, he's done four things. One, he spread his fame throughout the world. Two, he continued his recreation plan, that plan of redemption. Three, he established covenant terms for this special relationship. And four, he foreshadowed, right? This is typology here. He foreshadowed the coming life and ministry of Christ. All right? So we see, we've seen, um, Pastor Cody shared with you, and you studied together last week about how this is unfolding throughout the book of Exodus. And we see here in chapter 33, there's this interchange worth noting between the Lord and Moses in chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. We learn here that Moses... Um, for Moses, the covenant was not just a bunch of rules that we obey to get God, right? As if good works or obedience was the currency of receiving blessing. That's not the point here. The covenant was not an end unto itself. It was a, a means to a greater end. And, in, and as far as Moses is concerned, that end is what? Knowing and enjoying God. Moses doesn't want to travel any further from this because, again, what's the context? The people have sinned, right? Moses, I mean, the Lord says, I'm going to send you on. You're going to be a great nation, but I'm not going with you. You can even have the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. Because you being with us is what makes us a special people. God's presence with us is what sets us apart. He doesn't care that Israel is special and distinct from other nations unless that special status and distinction brings with it the presence of Yahweh. To know, to love, to enjoy the fellowship of God is rightly on Moses' agenda. And if, if that's not our goal too, then all of this, friends, is a wash. Right? Our church, Bible studies, the gospel, etc., they're all just... They would all just be religious artifacts to bring us social acceptance, to make us feel pious, or, uh, or to otherwise to order our otherwise chaotic lives, right? It would be a crutch for us to lean on. That's not what this is about, though. They are instruments that bring us to the greatest good, knowing, loving, enjoying, and fellowshipping with God and with the rest of His people. For that sole reason uh, and that sole purpose, because they are his people as well. All right. So then Moses says in verse 18 that he wants to see God's glory. Let me see your glory, he says. He wants to see the full manifestation of all of God's internal perfections and beauty. But look at what Yahweh says. He, and we'll, we'll reference this, we don't have time, but it's just in, verse, in verses 19 through 23. Uh, through 23, the Lord says, you can't see my face and live. You're a sinful man. If you see my face, it will kill you. So what does he do? He says, uh, he says, Moses, I want you, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock, kind of like a small cave, a little alcove there, and t as my glory passes by, and then you can see my back. And he comes by, and he proclaims his goodness as he does so. What would that have done? the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. So uh, then chapter 28, verses 38 through 46, speaking of God's glory and how that causes a problem for sinful people, uh, the last part of this lesson is about this thing called the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Uh, it was a tent in which Yahweh instructed his people to build, uh, or which Yahweh instructed his people to build, as a means of dwelling with them, even though they were sinful. Sin must be, must be punished in God's presence. So God's judgment of sin is part of what makes him holy and glorious. 
So how can the Lord dwell with his people and go with them as Moses requested? If they're sinful. Well, God offers that solution in, in, uh, in chapter 29. So again, what's the question? How can, holy, how can a holy God, and this is there in your notes, how can a holy God and sinful people live together without God's righteous judgment breaking out against them? Again, the Old Testament answer to this is the tabernacle. I think that's a blank there in your notes, right? The Old Testament answer is the tabernacle. So I want to look at seven things that we, that we see notably about the, the tabernacle here in this section um, and how that makes this relationship possible. First, this offering, the, the offering that we talked about um, being made for sin, it was to make atonement for sin. We see that in, in uh, verse 38. Verse 36 and other places in the Old Testament make it clear that sacrifices were for the atonement, for the payment for sins. And they had to be carried out every day. Every day, friends. We think our schedule is busy, right? We don't, we don't know, really. Uh, number two, only through forgiveness of sins can anyone meet with God. We see that in verse 42. That's why these offerings need to be made at the entrance of the tabernacle. That, because if you don't make that, that sacrifice at the entrance, you ain't getting in, right? That's the way this works. That's why these offerings had to be made at the entrance. Number three, the tabernacle is the place where Moses receives revelation from God. Moses doesn't have to go up to the top of the mountain anymore. He goes to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Uh, number four, the tabernacle is where God will meet with and reconcile with his people. See that in verse 43. Number five, tab the tabernacle is holy because the presence of God's glory is there. Number six, the tabernacle is the physical place where God will dwell in the midst of his people. Verse 45. Number seven, the purpose of all of this is, is, is that the Israelites would know their God. That they would know him. That they would be with him. And that he would be with them. That God would be known in all of his beauty and the power of who he is. That's the goal. So let me ask you this question. Do, do any of these things about the tabernacle sound familiar some of them, some of them, the way that we worded them, they, they kind of lend themselves to that. They, they're, they're kind of familiar. What if I told you that each of these things that I've just told you about the tabernacle are true about a person? So let's think about this. How each of these seven things are true about Jesus. Number one. Oh, sorry. The Old Testament answer again is the tabernacle. The New Testament answer is Jesus Christ. This is good, friends. Number one, Jesus made atonement for sins once and for all. Hebrews 9, verse 26. Jesus has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Number two, only through Jesus' atonement can anyone come to the Father. That's John 14, 6, right? Number three, Jesus is the full revelation of God. The place where we learn the most about him. Hebrews 1, verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. We actually had a long discussion about this last night with our pastors in, in, uh, in Nepal. Number four. G, our God meets and reconciles with his people in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 11, We also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Number five, Jesus is the manifestation, the revealing, the unfolding of God's glory. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Number six, Jesus is God in a physical body, dwelling with his people. Colossians 2, 9, in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Number seven, only through Jesus does anyone Know God. John 14, 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. This is good news. So do you see the tabernacle is a beautiful picture of how God condescends to be with his people. They don't deserve such a blessing, and neither do we, friends. But God in his wisdom and grace has provided a way for them to have it. And it all points toward this greater revelation of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. As in Christ, God dwelt as intimately as he could with us in our very nature, right? 
he took to himself a human nature. So now he is a 200% person, right? 100% God, 100% man dwelling with us. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. The Israelites only got to look forward to that greater dwelling with man. But for them, they had to settle with the tabernacle. Settle for the tabernacle. And that's how I say that. That seems really weird to say, right? But it's not that the tabernacle is not great, right? This is huge. God dwelling with man right here. So just because Jesus is, is more glorious doesn't mean that the tabernacle wasn't itself wonderful. It suited the purpose for that time until it was replaced by the, temp, the, the, um, the more uh, permanent version, the temple, and then in the true and better version, the Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right? Um, whom actually, Matthew 12, 6 says, he himself was the one that is greater than the temple. So in conclusion which is weird to say at this time. In conclusion, there's a lot more we could say in this topic, but we have to move on. So I want, to see, I want you to see this. Yahweh is fulfilling his covenant promises of old. That's that blank there under conclusion. Yahweh is fulfilling his covenant promises of old. He didn't forget them, right? Rather, he rescued his people from cruel captivity in dramatic fashion that highlights his power, glorifies himself around the world. And now his people are on their way to this land that God has promised them where they, even though they are not the most faithful bunch, right? We've already seen that in the book of Exodus. We've seen that in Genesis for that matter, right? But God is saying that they are going to be his people in his place under his rule. And that's what the book of Exodus is all about. All right? And then as we see that, all of this is the type pointing forward to the antitype, to Jesus Christ. So, um, a couple things for, um, well, let me, let me, I can't not read this. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. It says, and this is, this is the, as we read this, no, this is kind of the pinnacle of redemptive history thus far. All right? It says, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not even able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above, from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Because again, God, though this imperfect situation though it be, God is dwelling with his people. We've come a long way since Genesis 4. Right? And we have still we have a good ways to go. Applications, a couple of things. First of all, as Christians, you are, you and I both are twice indebted to God's glory. We're twice indebted to God's glory. We were created to display Him, right? We see that in Adam. We're created to know Him and to reflect His glory to all of creation. And then as, we're, as we trust in Christ being redeemed from, the sin, from sin, then we are redeemed and made new. Why? To display His glory to all of creation. So we are twice indebted to God's glory. Secondly, don't use the law as a means to establish your own righteousness. We all do this, don't we? At some point, we are trying to use the law, use some, some form of morality to point out how good we are and how bad others are that don't measure up to our standard of goodness, right? This is what's happening here. This is what we tend to do. So rather... What we see from Exodus is that the law should point us to Christ. Galatians tells that, right? It's, it's our schoolmaster. It points us to Christ. So then we endeavor by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit to keep the law. Not, again, to establish our righteousness, right? As if keeping the law grants us favor with God. No, but because we have favor with God, then we keep the law. Why? Because... It is our, it's our means of, of continuing on in fellowship with him and, and to display his goodness, his character, his glory to all the world. 
So again, don't use the law in a way to establish your own righteousness, but rather in a way that will drive you to Christ. I think that's a, a blank in your notes as well. All right? Not, not in a way to establish your own righteousness, but rather in a way to drive you to Christ. And on that same note, number two, help each other with this use of the law. We are a community. We are a family. We help each other. Sometimes that brings us into awkward conversations. But it is good. You know why? Because if sanctification is the, is the name of the game, then if I'm not living in such a way that I'm, if I'm not uh, interacting with you in such a way that I'm helping point you towards God's greatness and goodness, pointing you towards greater holiness in Christ, then I'm not loving you the way that I should. We're not loving each other the way that we should. We're a family. This is the game. So let's get busy. Okay? All right. Chapter or Lesson 5, Leviticus. Here we go. So last week, my manuscript tells me, in Exodus, <laughs> uh, last week in Exodus, we left the Israelites, historically speaking, as we think about context, historically speaking, we were at the foot of Mount Sinai, right? And it was still the mid-15th century B.C., right? 1,500 years before uh, the, the coming of Christ. So uh, Sinai was that mountain where Yahweh had led the Israelites from, and he had led them to Sinai from Egypt, right? It's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the instructions for building the tabernacle. And once the, once the Israelites built it, Yahweh's glory filled it and, the, and made the tabernacle the, the physical display of him dwelling with his people. So as Leviticus opens, we're in that same place. Much, not much time has passed by at all, right? We, we see where God's, God's presence dwells in the tabernacle and then Leviticus begins, okay? We're still in the mid-15th century. We're still at the foot of Mount Sinai, but Moses no longer needs to go up the mountain to meet with Yahweh because he can go to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Um, most of Leviticus takes place here. Moses and Aaron, his brother, met with Yahweh in the tabernacle to receive his instructions on how to live as a holy nation. Um, Leviticus is Moses' record of those instructions with one interlude from chapters 8 to 10. Okay? So we thought about historical context. Now let's think about redemptive historical context. Again, what is redemptive history? Redemptive history is that one story throughout the entirety of the Bible where God is redeeming his people, redeeming a people for himself, that he would be glorified for the greatness of his grace. That's the storyline of the Bible, right? So when we think about where are we in this redemptive storyline, we have creation, fall, redemption, consummation. You have those four main ideas, those four main points in the road, right? So redemptive, redemptive historically, Leviticus is another step forward. We're moving right along on this track according to God's good plan toward redemption in Jesus Christ and eventually the consummation of his kingdom. Yahweh has already fulfilled many of the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made them into a great nation, Israel. He's fulfilling the promise to bless them and to be their God. He will fulfill this promise of a land next time we study together in the book of Numbers. But Leviticus is kind of like a pit stop along the way, right? Yahweh is going to keep his people here at Sinai just long enough that he can give them instructions on how to be holy. Okay? Uh, so he's making it clear that being the people of a holy God, the people among which a holy God dwells, that this is no light matter. This is not something that we take lightly. So our theme, you see this in your notes, a couple of blanks there for you to fill in. I bet you could probably even fill these in as we go, right? The theme for Leviticus is that Yahweh is holy, and therefore his people must be holy too. That's right. So again, what does it mean to be holy? Holy means to be distinct, different, and ethically pure. Yahweh is holy. He is distinct, unlike anything or anyone else that could be compared to him. He is perfect. He has no shortcomings in his ethics, in his wisdom, in his justice, or any other virtue. Because Yahweh is holy, and his, his people then, who are in this special covenantal relationship with him, they must be holy as well. Their people and their nation, their priests, their clothing, their food, their treatment of each other, their treatment of foreigners even, must be holy, 
right? Why? Because the God who dwells in their midst is holy. So like last lesson, uh, the, the presence of a holy God spells trouble for sinners, right? To solve that problem, Yahweh in his grace gave them a tabernacle so that he could dwell with his people. And because Yahweh now dwells among them, they are expected to live holy lives and to be different from the nations that are around them that do not know Yahweh. And so, and in the midst of this, we are also going to see Yahweh's provision of forgiveness when his people fail. In your notes, I've given you an outline of pivotal text just as a reference for you. We're not going to go over that right now. Let's jump on down to theme texts. Okay? Got a couple of select theme texts for you. Let's look at chapters 1 through 7. We'll just, you know, that's a, that's a nice small block for us to look at, right? Seven chapters. So let's get back to the text. Our approach here, again, is to give you an overview that equips you for deeper study on your own and to teach this as well, right? Uh, we don't live for ourselves. We live to make disciples. We live to serve others and to help them gain better understanding as well. That's not just for pastors and for Sunday school teachers. That's for all of us, right? All of us have been given that command in Matthew 28. So chapters 1 through 7 are directions about how any ordinary Israelite is to bring offerings to God. All right? How any ordinary Israelite is to bring offerings to God. And that first one is a burnt offering which serves as uh, an atonement for sins. That's a blank there in your notes. An atonement for sins. Look there, uh, somebody read for me, chapter 1, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If the burnt offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons and priests shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides of the entrance to the tent of meetings. So there's, there's a very striking picture here of placing your hand on the head of this animal, on the head of this bull. It symbolized the transfer of a sinner's guilt from them onto the bull. Then the bull was killed with, for that person's sins. So when an Israelite uh, was mindful of his sin, aware of his sin, this is what he needed to do. I want you to think about this. How many bulls, sheep, goats, birds do you think a single Israelite might offer in their lifetime? That is a staggering picture. Later on when we get into the temple and we, we have, think about Jerusalem being set up here, it said that at, at, there are days where the streets would flow red with the blood of the sacrifices. This is insane, right? But yet, this is all according to God's good plan. So, the, and, and, the, and it has the, has the right effect, right? The, the Israelites had this ingrained into them that the Lord takes sin seriously. And, they, and through these common offerings, uh, they would see that. The rest of the chapters 6 and 7 are really a painstaking, tedious regulation, set of regulations about how to carry out these offerings. Reading them really, just reading them leaves you exhausted. The only thing that will be more exhausting than reading them is actually doing them, right? So, Can I have a question? Yes, ma'am. So the sacrifices done daily were for individual sins, but they only went into the Holy of Holies once a year? We're going to get there. Okay. Yes. You're, you're on the right track. Way to go. All right. Hey, so we're going to get there. So we may not get there this week. It's kind of toward the end of the lesson, but we'll see. Uh, but we're getting there. So, uh, but in the midst of all this, again, this would have been exhausting, but God expects precision. He expects perfection. And as we're going to see, all of this has an emphasis. And I think this is in your notes as well. What's the emphasis of this? It's to emphasize how difficult it is for sinners to dwell in a holy God's presence. How difficult it is to dwell and to live with a holy God. Let's move forward to chapters 8 through 10. Um, Moses was the, the nation's, uh, well, actually, I think in your notes you've got their uh, um, a personnel roster and then a personnel manual. All right? Personnel roster and a personnel manual. So first of all, we see Moses. Moses is the nation's first prophet, earthly leader. His job was to convey to people what God had conveyed to him, what God had revealed 
to him. Then we see Aaron, Moses' brother. His job is he's the first uh, high priest of the nation. What does he do? He leads God's people in worship. And then we see Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. Their job, they were appointed in back in, I think it was Exodus 28, uh, to be Aaron's helpers and, uh, and to be his, really, his successors. He's going to hand this role, this role off to them. So we see that, right? There's the personnel roster. Then we see the personnel manual. Chapters 8 through 10 are the regulations about how Aaron and his sons were to approach Yahweh in worship. We saw precision in how to conduct offerings. We also see precision and exact expectations in how to worship, right? And so with that, then let's look at chapter 9, verse, starting verse 22. We're going to read from verse 22 to 24. I think that's, well, no, that's, that's going to be in your Bible. Also, notes that are, are texts that are outside of the book that we're studying are going to be free, uh, are going to be available in the notes. Texts inside the book, like in Leviticus, for this example, they're going to you're just going to open your Bible and read because it's not a lot of work to move around that way. All right, so somebody read for me Leviticus nine twenty two through twenty four. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. He stepped down to making the sin offering and the burnt offering. He saw them. The tent of Megan, when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Keep going. Read verse 24. No, you're good. Then the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt and the portions of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. All right. So, what's going on here is that Yahweh has just given all these directions we just talked about, and then Aaron followed those directions. So then this happens. He, there's, this is really the climax of the book thus far. That we've had nine long chapters of what to do with dead animals, oil, fat, kidneys, flanks, livers, blood, fire, clean things, unclean things, priestly clothes, and the proper days to do it all, right? Okay? So then there was great detail and great exactness about how, how all of that was supposed to be handled. And then we have this scene. where fire comes out from the tent of meeting and consumes the offering. What is this showing us? It shows that God has accepted the sacrifice of the Israelites. That's awesome. And it shows that all of these requirements that God, that God has given them, that they have a purpose. Keep that picture in mind then as we go to chapter 10 Verses 1 through 3. Somebody read that for me. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting them, putting in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. So what does it mean when Moses says that they offered profane fire? Not propane fire, right? But profane fire. What does that mean? Other translations, like I think Brother Johnny said it was strange fire, unauthorized fire. It wasn't the right kind. It wasn't the right kind. In short... It was fire and therefore really worship as well that Yahweh had not commanded, that he had not required of them. Aaron's sons have decided to worship Yahweh in their own way. It was unholy. It was based unholy. On exactly. They're still worshiping Yahweh, not some false god. Isn't that good enough, Moses? Come on. No, they're worshiping Yahweh in a way according to the dictates of their own hearts, according to their own taste, right? According to what was convenient, what was easy. Not according to the way that Yahweh had told them to worship. Their worship may have been good intentioned, but even the good intentions of sinners will not pacify the holiness of God. So what happens to them? Remember in, nine, in chapter 9, we see that the fire comes out from the tabernacle and consumes the offering, right? Symbolizing that the offering had been accepted, right? Here, fire comes out from the tabernacle and consumes Nadab and Abihu. Their, their worship had not been accepted. And it was required of them at their hand. 
Um, so look at Moses' words then in, uh, to Aaron back at verse 3. It says, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all people, I must be glorified. Nadab and Abihu did not regard Yahweh as holy. They did not treat him as distinct. They just treated him like any other minor deity that they could deal with however they wanted to and, uh, and walk all over, essentially. Taking the word of Yahweh and his holiness as something slight and petty brought a disastrous end to both of them. Notice what Aaron says to Moses in, at the end of verse 3. Nothing. You know why? Because Aaron was the high priest. Aaron, in chapter 9, had just gone through this entire process. And he had done it rightly. He knows how to do it right. And his sons did not. He has nothing that he can say. He knows. So the application, friends, worship is not a game. Think back to the disobedience of Adam and Eve. They regarded God's word as unfit of heeding, and so they were banished from God's presence. The same's happening here. They tried to approach Yahweh under their own authority and their own terms. Friends, that's rebellion. And that's profaning God and not giving honor to Him. And if we think that, that punish, this punishment was a little too harsh, then we need to check our own hearts. We need to consider why it is that that we more closely identify uh, what Nadab and Abihu doing as acceptable than what God did as acceptable. That's a, that's a scary situation, isn't it? We find ourselves siding with man instead of God. All right? All right, so let's see. Chapters 11, let's look now at chapters 11 through 15 and then 18 through 27. Chapters 11 through 15 is what is called, this is in your notes, as the holiness code. The holiness code. Right? It's called that because it's a list of different kinds of foods that the Israelites can or can't eat or even touch. Right? So what would be the significance of such a list? Why would we, why would we want all these different things? Really, the answer is in chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. This is a list of really often recurring... Uh, actually, it's, a, it's the first of, a, of, a, of an oft-recurring statement... In, in Leviticus. So somebody read for me. Leviticus 11, 44, and 45. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. So twice we read here, and this is again a blank in your notes, the Israelites are to be holy because Yahweh is holy. So I know we've probably said this like three or four times already. We're going to hear it more before you get to the end of this lesson. I think there's a, there's a, there's a pattern here we need to be aware of. Right? So the reason for all these commands is that the, holy, the Israelites can be holy, distinct, and different. This teaching is all over Leviticus. So we, should need, we need to take it seriously. Chapter 19, verse 2, it says, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel. And say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We're going to just rapid fire through a couple of these. Chapter 20, verse 7 and 8. It says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies, which means to make holy, who sanctifies you. Right? That word consecrate, what does that mean? And that's a blank in your notes. To consecrate yourself means to set yourself apart as different or holy. Right? So chapter 20, verse 26. Um, and you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord your, or for I the Lord am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Right? Kind of reminds me of our memory verse from this from this uh, month, right? Isaiah 43:1. Right? Uh, I have called you by your name, you are mine. Look at Leviticus, Leviticus uh, 21, verse 8. Here we see an explicit setting apart from the other nations. Uh, Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he uh, offers you the, uh, the bread of your God. Um, he shall be holy to you, for the I, the Lord, who sanctify you, are holy. Chapter 22, verses 31 through 33. Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. 
I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So what does it mean then to profane God's name? What does it mean? That's another uh, blank there in your notes. What does it mean to profane the Lord's name? It means to treat as common or ordinary or mundane something that is really special and distinct. This is what we saw with Nadab and Abihu, right? They treated God who is holy, set apart, and special as if he's just another part of my day that I that I can be sovereign over and that I can decide what's right, right? He doesn't he doesn't take it that way, friends. So Yahweh's name then is to say his his image, his reputation. And his his name is tagged on to Israel. So they can't be a people who take identification with Yahweh insincerely, lightly, thoughtlessly, irreverently, as if he was just some peripheral thing that could be trampled underfoot. The opposite is, of course, to treat his name as holy. That means to take up identification with him and his character as a solemn and awesome endeavor. And to behave in a way that is different from the nations that are not in covenant with him. Now that begs another question. What makes certain things clean and therefore holy? And what makes certain things unclean and therefore unholy? Right? God's statement. There you go. Well, how many pages does that, does that solve for me? Let's see. So, let's see. So, some people, because there are, there are a lot of theories on this, right? One that's really prevalent is the theme, is the theme of health. Right, the answer of health. That how many how many diets have we heard of that come from Leviticus or Daniel or other places? Now, that's not saying that some of these things might there might be something something good about them or redemptive about them. But um, the problem here is that you don't see anywhere in this passage about some of these things being more healthy or more helpful than others. Right. So, uh, furthermore, we also read we just read and we know what the what's the theme of this book that. God is holy, therefore his people must be holy. Holiness is the theme. Being set apart unto the Lord is the theme. So the question then remains, what makes these things holy? Maybe, maybe the next verses in chapter 11 will help us. So let's turn there. 11 verses 46 and 47. Who can read that for me? All right, Bob. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the water and of every creature that creeps upon the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Did you hear that? God is commanding the Israelites to distinguish between certain things. They're told to make a judgment in their minds about what is acceptable for them and what is not. In that, we have our answer. Before you start filling in blanks, though, hear me out. Right? So Yahweh, Yahweh himself makes, distinct, makes distinctions on the earth. He does not treat all nations the same. Rather, he has chosen one nation to be his special covenant people. And therefore, they must be distinct from all other nations. They must be different. They must be holy. Yahweh is giving them these commands, this is there in your notes, so that every day of their lives they will be reminded. Each of these restrictions, each of these things about what is holy and what is not holy, they are meant to remind them again and again that they are a holy nation and set apart, a people set apart for the Lord. No longer are they to live just like everybody else, right? According to what, they, what, they, uh, what is right in their own eyes, without any thought of their uniqueness in the world. But Yahweh has now written it into their very culture that wherever they turn, whatever they're doing, um, that they'll be reminded of their distinct status and will therefore live as holy. When they eat, they're reminded that not all things on the earth are the same. And we too, as, as a people, are not the same as everyone else. For not everyone else knows Yahweh. Not everyone else is in a covenant relationship with Him. We saw that back in chapter 20, verse 26. If you read chapter 11, then you'll see that when things are called unclean, they are often... Uh, they're not often just called unclean, but they're called unclean for you. Right? Not just unclean, but unclean for you. They're unclean specifically for you, my special people. Then in chapter, through chapter 15, this language of clean and unclean continues. 
Even with, uh, within the people of Israel, there are clean and unclean people. Status is a certain people. It's as, it's as though there's levels of holiness, levels of distinction. The holier you are, the closer you can come to worshiping the holy God. And just as Israel is the most holy nation on the earth, and they, then they also have the closest relationship with Yahweh. Now, so then the question would be then, do we still have to obey all these laws? The quick answer is no. Right? Why? Because, and this is in your notes, we are not the nation state of Israel under this covenant. We are not the nation state of Israel under this covenant. Friends, we have a better covenant we're a part of. Amen. Right? So we're not called to be a political geographic nation distinct from other nations. So these particular laws, they don't apply to us. However, we are nevertheless a special people set apart by and for the Lord. So while we may not be a country, we are a church. The church of Jesus Christ is called to be holy and for the same reason. So that, this is in your notes there. Someone read for me 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, because it's your, it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Amen. So we see this, this principle too, that the, the New Testament is also signaling to us what amongst the old the old law is still in effect, right? This is helpful, right? This is a, an authoritative translation or authoritative uh, interpretation. So the foundational call to be holy is still in place. And the reason for our call to be holy, being that because God is holy, is still as sure as it ever was. We're still to be distinct and different from the rest of the world. It just manifests itself in a different way. Because we live after the cross. We live thousands of years later on the other side of the planet. We, have to, we still, though, have to look and live in a different way uh, from those who do not know and do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, okay, now another question for us, right? If it's not our food that shows that we're holy or that, that makes us holy, then how are we called to be holy? In what ways are God's people holy today? I'm so glad you asked that question. And Jesus gives us an answer. Look there in Mark chapter 7, verse 18 through 23. I'll go ahead and read that for us. It says, So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter into his, stum uh, enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Amen. Barbecue. Woo-woo. All right. So... And shrimp and all kinds of good things, right? It says, and he said, well, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, uh, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Uh, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. So you see, the intent was never to make some legalistic standard that we could live up to by sheer force of will, but to remind the Israelites how they were different. Now that the promised Messiah has come, the principle is the same. You see this in your notes, right? Same principle, but different manifestation. We focus on what? Our hearts. That's the key. We focus on our hearts. We guard our hearts. Uh, so that we can be different in such areas as, again, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, uh, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And, and the external markers that remind us of this, right? The external markers in our life now as the church that remind us of this, we call them ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They show us that we have died to the old life. We are now risen to a new life in Christ. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. We have a new life. We live with Him, and therefore we are called to be holy. We continue that, right? Baptism is, it shows us at the entrance into the covenant community. Uh, Lord's Supper shows us as we continue in the covenant community that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We, we remember Jesus' death and, uh, and His shedding of His blood for us, and we proclaim His death until He comes. Wouldn't the fruits of the Spirit also be there, 
Yeah. I mean, they are they're they're evidences of that. Right. This I mean, is this I is the that would be an external marker, but no. They're not in a way uh, in the same way that they're intended to remind us. Not as tangible. Well, I mean, they're not as tangible, but at the same time, they're not the the purpose of the fruit of the spirit is not there necessarily to remind us. Right, but it's it's the product yeah, it's of the it's the result of. I, mean, I still think that's an external marker. <laughs> Sorry. Fair enough. Oh well, go ahead. Fair enough. I hear you. I heard you saying that. All right. So, but these things they remind us of our uniqueness and our special obligation to be ethically upright. We'll talk more about this in future courses as well, um, specifically ones about ecclesiology. So, um, chapter sixteen. Now we have a major issue here. Ooh. I don't think we're going to get there, friends. That's so sad. Here we are, right here, Miss Becky, the day of the day of atonement, right here. Oh. Leave us hanging. Hey, you know what? We'll we'll get to that next week, okay? So with that, then I think we let's let's jump on over to our section on on uh, on uh, application. Right there at the end, let's look at application. We can't look at all of it today, but we'll look at some of it, okay? So, uh, big thing that we can look at, big story we can look back on as we as we close, as we can look back at the story of Nadab and Abihu. Remember this story. Two things that we can see very clearly from the, well, one thing, and then we're going to split that up into two. Remember the story of Nadab and Abihu. Yahweh cares how he is worshipped. He cares. This is important to him. All right. So, first of all, on the first level. Yahweh can only be worshipped through Jesus Christ. Yahweh can only be worshipped through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to God. In our culture of pluralism and relativism, that there are many ways to God, that we're all just on different sides of the mountain, or we're just on different sides of the elephant, right? And we're all the, the blind people on different sides. Like, oh, it feels, feels like, like an elephant to me. Oh, it feels like you know, something else over here. Like that kind of thing. That's not what this is, right? Right? There is one way to God. Jesus said it in John 14, 6. We often hear there are many different ways to God, but Jesus, that Jesus is just uh, the Christian expression of access to God. Don't believe it, friends. Yahweh is the only God. And he has said that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to draw near to him. Uh, Hebrews 10, uh, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23 says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the... Uh, the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is all right. Second, then, our secondary application then is that God's word is the authority on our worship, not our tastes. Right? God's word is the authority on worship, not our tastes. There are two kinds of worshipers. There's one kind. Uh, one kind has to have all the right music and prayers the way they like them. The other may have just rolled out of bed on the right side. And, on the, uh, and all, the other, all their creature comforts have to be met before they can worship. Then there are worshipers who worship God because He alone is worthy of worship. They will lay down their own personal preferences because the beauty and the glory of the Lord is far greater of significance than the style or the music or the temperature of the room. Right? He is worthy of worship all the time. He is worthy to be worshipped the way that He wants to be worshipped. It is those worshipers who worship God according to his word. They worship him with all their lives. Worship is no game. We need to examine our hearts before and while we worship and make sure that we are worshiping the Lord indeed and not just worshiping ourselves and our tastes. Because if it's all about the way that we want to worship, we may realize someday that we're not worshiping the Bible at all or the God of the Bible. We're Instead, we're worshiping ourselves. So... And as far as we can get tonight, that's what the message of Leviticus is all about, Charlie Brown. Wait, number two, what is that? Strive for holiness? Yes. We're, yeah. 
That's the one from that's the one from the rest of the, the lesson. But yeah, strive for holiness. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace with all people and and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. All right. We'll get to we'll get to the the day of atonement. Man, oh man! If your if your heart's feeling really heavy right now because of all these regulations, wait till we get to the day of atonement. It's it's beautiful. All right. I, I can't wait for us to hear about that next week. Any questions? Thank you guys for asking questions tonight. I love it. Right. All right, friends, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for Leviticus. That's a statement we, we find we don't say very much. But Lord, this is this is your word. And each time that I read it, I see all the more clearly my need for Christ. Lord, thank you. For revealing to us the bad news of the gospel that no matter how hard we try that we cannot get to you by our own good works Lord help us or thank you for showing us how high the standard of holiness really is because Lord my heart wants to be like the northern kingdom of Israel when Amos was was preaching in all these other all these other countries. I, my heart wants to cheer along and say, "Look at them! They're not like me. They're not good." As if my standard is simply just being better than other people. Lord, thank you that you show us the true standard of your word, and thank you for revealing to us that we don't come anywhere close. Lord, thank you for the one, the, the true tabernacle, the true, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for revealing to us Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here in the sound of my voice tonight that does not know Christ, I pray that even, even from the book of Leviticus they would see their need for a Savior. They would trust in Jesus and be saved. Father, more than just understanding your word, more than just applying your word, make us faithful to teach your word. Lord, even if we may think that we're not good teachers, you have commanded us to make disciples, teaching teaching people to observe all that you've commanded us. So Lord, help us to, to gain better understanding and to apply our understanding of Leviticus that we may be able to teach it well to those that will follow after us. Lord, make us a church that makes disciples. Not just a church that may have a handful of people that make disciples, but Lord, make us a church family that makes disciples. And Lord, I pray that that uh, the more that we understand and, uh, and obey your, the, your command to do so, Lord, I pray that, that Callahan will change and look different because of it. That Florida and the United States and Nepal and the rest of this world would look different. Not that we're the only people that could do it. Because, Lord, we know that we're just, we're just one part of your kingdom. But, Lord, help us to be faithful here where we are and as we have opportunity that your name and your renown would be the desire of our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.